This is the Bible Study Magazine podcast from Faith Life, makers of Logos Bible Software. I'm your host, Mark Ward, and we are talking in this first season about biblical literacy. Our specific topic today is the Bible and archaeology. This is a field I'm both fascinated by and, to be honest, a little wary of. I'm fascinated because I've been to Israel. I've poked around ancient archaeological sites that show up in scripture, like Jericho, like, uh, boy, uh, Megiddo, really wonderful, incredible places. It is a rich world of study. Lying beneath you everywhere you go at these places are items that were dropped by fleeing citizens of Lachish or Megiddo in a battle untold centuries ago. But I'm wary of this field, too, for a couple of reasons that I mentioned to our interviewee today, Dr. Craig Evans, who's got experience in this area. I trained for years to read scripture accurately, but I'm not trained very deeply in archaeology, and I don't think I'm alone among folks into academic biblical studies. So I don't know what to make of debates in the field that have an impact on Bible interpretation. I'm at the mercy of authorities like Dr. Evans. I also have seen fellow Christians with apparently faithful and sincere motivations who are trumpeting this or that archaeological find as absolute proof that the Bible is true, and I often catch hints that they aren't being entirely responsible. That makes me feel a little wary of biblical archaeology. So I took my very personal questions, driven by my own interest in the study of Scripture, to Dr. Craig Evans who is an expert in this field and has been trying to correlate, you'll hear that word, the Bible and archeology span in the Holy Land for a long time. Listen in. The Bible Study Magazine podcast is brought to you by Bible Study Magazine delivering tools and methods for Bible study from respected scholars and church leaders. Right now, start a free trial. Get six months of fresh insights on achieving greater Bible literacy. Visit BibleStudyMagazine.com slash trial today. Dr. Craig Evans, a frequent contributor to the Bible Study Magazine and to other Faith Life products. Thank you for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Good to be with you. The theme of the first season of the BSM podcast is biblical literacy. And I wanted to ask you, just jumping right in, Dr. Evans, you've done some work for us, and more importantly, for the church on biblical archaeology. You were the cover story of a recent Bible study magazine. Um, how much biblical archaeology does a modern Western Christian have to know in order to be biblically literate? And what, what maybe would be the top one or two biblical archaeology resources that you'd hand to such a Christian, or maybe experiences or documentaries or books or whatever, to help them in their biblical literacy? Well, I think, uh, I think it's important that people who want to take the Bible seriously or want to know about the Bible just realize in a general sense that archaeology correlates with the Bible. Archaeology does not disprove it. Archaeology does not show that the biblical narratives and history are just a bunch of myth, that kind of thing, which would counter some irresponsible comments that are typically made uh, in popular media and kicked around here and there on blogs and so on. So I think that's important to know. So if a person wants to take the Bible seriously, wants to be familiar with it, read it, and is wondering, can I trust it? Uh, you know, are these stories, are they really talking about real people who lived a long time ago, things that actually happened? I think in a general sense, they just need to know that, well, as a matter of fact, there is a discipline called biblical archaeology because archaeology correlates with the biblical stories. If they did not, there wouldn't be a, a discipline called biblical archaeology. It wouldn't even exist. Now, that said, if you want books that relate to uh, uh, archaeology uh, and the Bible, of course, there's a lot to choose from. There's a very simple book. Uh, it's not very long. It just came out last year called The Bible and Archaeology by Matthew Richelle. It came out in French a couple of years earlier. It's an English translation last year, the Bible and archaeology, and it talks about this whole subject very well. 
uh, but you can be specialized. You can talk about archaeology and Paul, uh, the Old Testament, uh, Ephraim Stern's book, Archaeology of the Land of the Bible. It's two or three volumes. First two volumes would be very relevant uh, to this question. My own book, if I may be allowed to say so, Jesus and his world, the archaeological evidence, it, of course, specifically relates to Jesus and the Gospels. So there's there's a lot of stuff out there. Some are technical. It talks about archaeology of the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapters one and two. So there are a lot of books out there, to, and that would that document what I just said that there is this correlation. I think that's a good word to use. It's a correlation between the Bible and archaeology, and there would be no correlation if the Bible was just a lot of myth and fairy tales talking about people who didn't exist or, or places that aren't really there or things that never happened. You wouldn't have that correlation. So it's good to know that there is the correlation, and if you want to explore it further, there are several books on various aspects of it that are available and uh, at different levels, some very technical, some more popular. That's really helpful, and I really love that word you used. I'm not sure I've run across it used that way before, but I like it too, because on the one hand, you know, this Bible Study Magazine podcast, like other things that Faith Life produces, is guided by the ECPA Statement of Faith, Evangelical Christian Publishers Association, and we openly say that we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. And then, of course, you'd expect him to be relaying things that actually happened. Um, however, <clears throat> on the flip side, you know, I've always been a little wary of biblical archaeology, and I wanted you to give me some wisdom here. You know, not because I distrust the Bible. I don't. I believe it's inspired by God, but because I am sometimes wary of fellow Christians, well-meaning, who might be championing some archaeological find as quote-unquote proof that now we can see the Bible actually is true. And, and even in my comparative ignorance of the field, it's not one I've really dug deeply into, just tried to stay aware of. I am aware, however, that there are schools of archaeology and there are disputes and factions and interpretations that are different that placed on the same artifact. So somehow I just doubted that there's one find that can prove the Bible in some sort of faith-independent way. Am I a bad and cynical Christian for thinking this way, Dr. Evans? No, not at all, because uh, some people are very much guided by the idea that archaeology, done rightly, uh, is supposed to prove everything. But what's really problematic there is the Bible itself is not always well understood. And archaeology can help us understand it better. Now, let me give an example of that. There are some people who insist that uh, Noah's Ark is somewhere up in the mountains in eastern Turkey. And, of course, this is uh, not true, and the rumors abound, and there are actual hoaxes in some cases, if not outright fraud, in trying to get well-to-do people to uh, uh, undertake expeditions and things like that. So it's based on a, a very unnatural literalistic interpretation of a story in the early chapters of Genesis without respect uh, for the biblical scholarship, a failure to even understand what kind of stories they are. They're more parable than they are literal history. And so the Bible is misinterpreted, and then the archaeology and geology are forced to support that interpretation. And so when that happens, to me, that professionally is embarrassing. I think it's a discredit to Christian scholarship in general. It makes Christians look silly. It, uh, it creates situations where Christians reject science. And so that reinforces the skeptical view out and about that to be a Christian means you put your brain on the shelf. You, you reject science. You don't want to think. You don't want to be really guided by the evidence. And that's very unfortunate. And so that you're right to be wary of that kind of thing. We're not out to prove anything. We're out to learn. And what we want to know is uh, in doing the archaeology, let the chips fall where they fall. Because what archaeology might show is that our understanding of the Bible is wrong. And so we need to we need to see it in a new light and interpret it in a new way. Well, you have to be open to that. Uh, and if you aren't, then you're not going to allow archaeology to uh, uh, 
to teach you. You won't learn from it. And you might pursue a bogus uh, style of archaeology. And I'm a little nervous about that. There are people running around trying to prove things. Uh, and I think it ultimately is a discredit to the discipline and it doesn't make the church look good at all. You know, I, I personally, as a Christian, want to affirm whatever the Bible affirms. And as a Bible teacher, I have a holy dread of standing before God's people and saying, you know, thus saith the Lord and finding out later, you know, I, I didn't really say that. You didn't represent me well. And I've had to also try to read the book of what I'd call God's general revelation to make sure that I'm understanding appropriately what God intended to affirm in Scripture. And though serious Christians can disagree about how to relate those two books of God's revelation, I want to be utterly responsible with both of them. Now, you wrote in your Bible Study Magazine article that was entitled, Why Archaeology Matters for Bible Study, you said that archaeology can clarify or correct our assumptions about the past. And you contrasted the more mature Christian view of archaeology with one that tried to use archaeology to, quote, prove this or that about the Bible. I think that's kind of the theme that we're talking about now. But you did say that archaeologists go about their work asking how their discoveries clarify the world of the Bible. Could you possibly give me an example of uh, studies in that field, maybe that you've done personally, that have clarified the Bible for you? Well, uh, yes, it does relate to what I was just saying. Um, sometimes the Bible gives us stories that are telescoped uh, you, in a matter of a few paragraphs. We might actually be covering a hundred years or more. Uh, and so the archaeology then helps us recognize, oh, wait a minute, the, the, the biblical story here. These are a couple of vignettes that are scattered over 100, 150 years, and, and we're collapsing them together. And so if that happens, uh, sometimes it relates to genre. Are we talking about a parable or are we talking about an actual report uh, and that kind of thing? And so that's we just have to allow the archaeology to speak and teach us. And for me, it's a um, the reason I like the word correlation is it implies that both elements, the archaeology and the biblical text, shed light on each other. They're mutually clarifying. And so the archaeology, of course, archaeology is always facilitated if there's a written text that's related to it that can help guide the archaeologist. So the archaeologist knows where to dig, has a better idea to under in understanding what he has dug up. And uh, then, of course, the archaeology turns around and clarifies the biblical text as well. And it cautions us against uh, unwarranted conclusions, whether it's relating to time, chronology, relating to genre, or uh, whether it should be interpreted literally, or maybe it's hyperbole. All of these kinds of questions come into play. And that's why I think biblical scholarship, biblical exegesis, ought to always have its eye open on what's going on in archaeology. And so I'm troubled by whether it's an Old Testament professor or a New Testament professor who teaches and says, look, I know my Greek, I know my Hebrew and so on, but they don't know the archaeology. And so I think that there's always a risk then in being inaccurate or at the very least incomplete in what's being taught. I think we just need to do a better job of it. I had very little training in biblical archaeology in seminary. I did take a course that gave me fascinating insight into the ancient historical milieu of the Bible. It even taught me to use the word milieu with confidence and savoir-faire. But until I got to go to Israel at the very end of my dissertation process, I lacked any tactile feel for the world of biblical archaeology. I had seen National Geographic specials and I'd read articles here and there in Christian magazines, but I hadn't really sat down to hear someone who knows the New Testament and archaeology tie the two together, the Old Testament too, of course. I want then to recommend to you a mobile ed course taught by our guest on the BSM podcast today, uh, Craig Evans, Archaeology and the New Testament, NT307. When I was doing some research for the Empty Tomb Interactive in Logos Bible Software, I used Evan's work, and it was just what I needed. Confident, 
careful with scripture, the fruit of first-hand knowledge of the stuff that lies in the dirt in the faraway Holy Land, and second-hand knowledge. In fact, in, in fact, both of his hands have spent a lot of time in that dirt, and you get the benefit of it if you pick up NT307, Archaeology and the New Testament. Get it at Logos.com. Some of your work that I've appreciated involved Faith Life folks coming out and filming with you in a first century tomb that was discovered not that many years ago. And I enjoyed watching you take us on a little tour down there. You shimmied down there and they got the camera equipment in there and you were showing off what an actual first century tomb hewn out of the rock looked like. Um, I actually got to write some articles for an empty tomb interactive in Logos Bible software that was built to accompany some of the videos that you shot. And I really enjoyed how illuminating it was. You know, you weren't saying this is, you know, this was Jesus' tomb. This was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. How, how could we possibly know that? Um, but by going back into this kind of time capsule, we got to see what it would have been like for Joseph of Arimathea to have somebody hew out a tomb for him. Talk to us about this discovery of the tomb at Akeldama. How can we be sure also that, that it is an intact first century tomb? There are a lot of ways that we date tombs. And by the way, sometimes we don't know. Uh, we're guessing it could be 100 years in any direction. But usually what happens in a tomb uh, there's a typology. That's what we call it. Uh, there's a way of making something. Typology can refer to uh, pottery. It can refer to uh, architectural designs, uh, building styles, and so on. And so the way the tombs were hewn out of the rock, the way the openings were made, the way the, st the uh, stone uh, doors were made, uh, a lot of factors like that give us an indication of the timing. But also, tombs contain things. They contain pottery, and that's hugely helpful. And so when we find a tomb and there are pieces of pottery, it could be lamps. It can be little uh, juglets that contain either oil or perfume. Uh, there can be coins found inside the ossuaries. Uh, along with the skeletal material. When we find things like that, then we can usually date a tomb within a 50-year period of time. Of course, we had a major event, and that was the destruction of, of Jerusalem in the year 70. And a lot of things changed after that. And so normally we can find a tomb and, and we can readily tell that this tomb was in use prior to the uh, Jewish rebellion that broke out in 66 and ended in 70. And then, as I said, there are things we find in the tomb, uh, even, even a burial shroud and the style of the weave. So there are a lot of things that we find in a tomb that can give us a pretty good idea of its date. And so in most cases, we're able to, the ossuaries themselves that are found in tombs and the way they are designed, that will give us a date. And so we usually can date a tomb, you know, one, two, three generations, how long it was in use. And, and that's not too hard uh, dating it. I'll clarify for our listeners, an ossuary is a bone box into which the, you know, after the dead body is decomposed, you collect the bones and put it in that box, correct? That is correct. And, and what, there were ossuaries, of course, used uh, for the practice of oscillavium, bone collecting. In the Jewish tradition, it's one year after death. So there were two funerals, the primary funeral, which usually took place the very day of death, and, uh, and then went on for seven days. At, at or in the tomb, which is why there were lamps and perfume and so on for obvious reasons. And then a year later, the, as you just said, the bones would be gathered up and placed either in a bone box or in a special niche. And, uh, and so on it went. One of the dead bodies that was placed into a special niche in that very tomb, I believe, had that niche sealed up in such a way and the limestone around there was constituted in such a way that there was a good deal of the body preserved, um, enough to establish that the person in there had leprosy. Is that right? Yeah, you are correct. Uh, we went into that very tomb. It's called the Shroud Tomb. It uh, could also be called the Leper's Tomb. Uh, it was found quite by accident, I believe, in the year 2000. And uh, an archaeologist with whom I've worked, Shimon Gibson, he actually was there when it was discovered. He reported it, and it had been looted, 
And so he spent the night in that tomb to prevent further looting from taking place. He then was granted permission to do a very hasty excavation because tombs today are, are you're not allowed to excavate them. The ultra-Orthodox don't want bones from the past disturbed. And he went down into the lower level of this tomb and he found one of these uh, burial niches sealed up. They removed the ceiling stone, and to their surprise, inside was a body that was still laid out. It had not been, the bones had not been uh, disarticulated and gathered up and placed in a box. And there was a burial shroud covering this body. So they, they pulled the body out, removed the burial shroud, and to their great surprise, uh, there was still hair on the head. There was still scalp. And they deduced that the tomb had been so well sealed that it became anoxic. That is, there was no longer any oxygen. And the bacteria that had consumed the flesh had died. And so scalp and hair remained and became mummified. So they did a biopsy of the scalp and discovered that the person had Hansen's disease, which is leprosy as well as tuberculosis, and that is what had caused this person's death. It confirmed that leprosy actually was in Israel prior to the year 70. Uh, some people did not know that. They wondered if the Bible's discussion of leprosy was really just psoriasis or something like that. But this confirmed for the first time scientifically that leprosy actually existed in Israel in the time of Jesus. So there's an example of your correlation. I really enjoyed both reading about that and watching the video and writing about it. Now I've got a question. So I am actually pretty well described at what you said earlier, somebody who's involved in New Testament studies, whose training was so focused on reading the Greek and interpreting the text that I did not spend very much time in biblical archaeology. I read, I did some projects and uh, read up uh, in the Biblical Archaeology Review and enjoyed a book by Herschel Shanks, I remember, on the Dead Sea Scrolls, but even that was focused more on the biblical text than on archaeology proper, perhaps. So I've been at a little bit of a loss uh, when I've come to a question I've had recently for a project I'm working on, which is, <clears throat> what is the skin color variation among ancient Jews in Jesus' time, particularly him and Mary and Joseph, the shepherds? Can biblical archaeology, does even that very uh, discovery shed any light on that question? Let me let me clarify one other thing here. That is that we want to be accurate for little kids who are looking at pictures. That's our motivation here. Nothing about race in particular so much as wanting to make sure we're not showing off Jesus as the whitest person in the room. Do you have any reflections on that? Well, I do. Uh, the fine we're talking about, I am not aware if the pigment of the skin was looked at uh, you need to understand that when we find body parts uh, in Israel, it makes no difference how, how old they are. They can be two, 3,000 years old. The ultra-Orthodox, and now by law, there is the expectation that these uh, items are either not disturbed at all or if they have to be disturbed uh, because of looting or whatever, they are then properly buried. So the, the skin and scalp, the whole skeleton of this individual that we've been talking about, you won't find him in a lab. You can't pull him out of a drawer and look at him and study him. So the studies were done and the person was buried. And uh, that's the end of it. And so the report that I have seen had to do with simply uh, there was no DNA that I'm aware of that was done other than the uh, biological study to determine what caused death. And that's how they found the microbes, the bacteria that uh, relate to both tuberculosis and Hansen's disease. I'm not aware of a pigment study. Uh, the skin, of course, darkens uh, in age. And so uh, you can't just tell by looking at it what color of skin this individual had. However, there's no mystery here. Uh, whereas the Jewish people, uh, you know, had a prohibition against images. And so you just don't have pictures of Jewish people. The Egyptians had no prohibition against making images. And so we have lots of death portraits. We have hundreds of them that date to the second century mostly, but that's close enough. Uh, and many Jewish people lived in Egypt also. And in terms of their genetic relationship, uh, the Jewish people and Egyptians are cousins 
And so uh, we have a very good idea of what a, a first century Jewish man would have looked like. And he has olive colored skin. He has that Mediterranean look with which we are familiar and uh, very dark brown hair, uh, usually not straight, usually a little bit of a wave and curl to the hair and uh, and uh, dark brown, amberish uh colored eyes. And so we have a very good idea in general what Jewish men would have looked like. And presumably, since no one ever comments on Jesus's appearance, he probably didn't look unusual. It's unremarkable. So, yeah. And there's been a recent study by Joan Taylor. What did Jesus look like? That's the name of the book came out last year. And that's her conclusion. And I think she's right. So Jesus was not, uh, you know, anything. I don't think he had blue eyes. And I doubt if he looked like he was from Sweden. And so I think that point is well taken. He probably looked a lot like the men we see depicted in these uh, funeral uh, portraits. But I have to wonder, uh, that's actually a really great uh, connection I had not thought of. And that book never uh, made it onto my radar either. I have to take a look at that. Now I have another question for you, something I've always wondered about biblical archaeology. I've been to Israel. I was taking in tons of information every day. One of the things that made the biggest impression on me was going to the tell at Megiddo, the tell being the mound, as you well know, better than I, um, in which uh, successive generations of layers of ancient uh, cities lay on top of one another. You know, the, the same place would uh, be inhabited by different cultures. And I remember in particular seeing a big slice just cut out of the cake as it were, at Megiddo. And you could see what I now know is called the stratigraphy, the different layers of um, inhabit uh, of habitation in that city. Um, but I've always wondered how accurate can stratigraphy be? You know, the dating of levels by pottery and other means. You've talked about that a little bit. Did ancient cities truly get leveled as in like, you know, perpendicular to the force of gravity? And, you know, why wouldn't an invading force keep the existing buildings? And maybe just one more little question there. I'm packing in a lot here. How sure are we that the pottery from after Christ, let's say, didn't get dropped into a pit on the edge of the tell, you know, therefore making it appear as if that level is at a different time than it was? Talk to us about tells and how archaeologists work on them. Well, you raise some uh, good uh, good points here. Um, tell, our, let me put it this way. Stratigraphy is very reliable. In general, it's very reliable. And uh, when there was destruction, there was fire, uh, things were usually pushed down. Whatever was still standing up got pushed over, and then there was a building on top of it. Yes, of course, stones could be reused, and they often were. And so then you ended up with disturbances. And so something that was old ends up being on top and in with the newer stuff. And archaeologists know that there are exceptions. Also, the other thing, too, is once you have a hill, whether it's a tell or, or just a natural hill, uh, stratigraphy can be uh, compromised because of the slope. And so something that is older that happens to be a little higher up on the hill can end up tumbling down the hill and cover something that's newer. And so it, it may well be the analogy is good, a layered cake, but we don't have cakes that are sloped at 45 degree angles. Right. It might be more like putting a bunch of blankets on top of a, a grassy knoll, you know, the, the top layer of the top blanket um, actually, you think it, you know, it goes down the sides as you've got layers at an angle. That's right. And when archaeologists, uh, and of course, there are books on stratigraphy, Shimon Gibson, uh, with whom I've worked at Mount Zion, he's actually written a book on the subject. And, uh, and of course, this is talked about. Archaeologists know that. Uh, you talked about some pottery that might get dropped. By the way, that happens. Uh, coins. Uh, I, I, there are funny stories out there where an archaeologist is working at, at uh, you know, he's he's working at the Hasmonean level. You know, it's 150 B.C. and he finds an American quarter with George Washington's face on it. And there it is. And you wanted to wait a minute. How Aliens, happened? time travel. It's got to be. Yeah, it. that's right. And, uh, and, the, and it's real simple. There are holes and there are rodents. 
Uh, there are creatures that grab things and move them around. And of course, a heavy coin naturally wants to keep working its way downhill. And so over the course of 10 years, it might drop through several layers and literally go back in time uh, a couple thousand years. And so that happens, and archaeologists know that. And sometimes the ancient people themselves rearrange things. Um, there could be an earthquake. I actually worked at a dig site in Cyprus, and there it was, a wall that had collapsed. Nobody bothered to pick it up and try to rebuild it. They just threw more debris on top of it, leveled it off, and then built on top of that. And I dug through that, and I was finding broken pottery. It was filled. And so it was coming from different ages and times, and here was the broken down wall, the tumble. And so the stratigraphy was mixed up, but it was obvious that it was mixed up. We weren't fooled by it, and so we didn't misdate something because of it. So archaeologists usually know what they're doing, and these kinds of disruptions and dislocations, they, they, you know, they know about that. It's just all part of it. Okay. Dr. Evans, thank you for your time, but I have one more question for you. Now, be honest. Let's imagine that we could get an ancient Jew from the time of Christ, Peter himself, to time travel to our day, and somehow we managed, after some practice, to bridge the linguistic gap with him. How many of the assured results of modern biblical archaeology would Peter just laugh uproariously at? I mean, aren't we making a lot of guesses about the purposes of artifacts and walls and foundations? Are, are, are we building guesses on guesses until they become fact? I don't think it's quite that bad. I think I, I think if Peter, we were to bring Peter back and he, and he looks at our museums and our descriptions of things, he probably would chuckle once or twice. I don't think uh, he'd laugh his head off that we got everything wrong. And that's why, because we have written texts. And uh, the further back you go, the less written text you have and you find objects. I mean, you know, there are temples and there are things that go back two or three, 4,000 years BC. And then we're doing a lot of guessing because we don't have actual text that explains things. But if we're talking about the biblical era, we have not just biblical texts. We've got stuff by Josephus. We have other writers who explain things. So it's relatively rare that we find some object, and we have found a few, where we look at it and go, you know, we don't know what that is, and we don't know uh, what it was used for. And so you'll have some guesses. Maybe it was used for this. Maybe it was used for that. And I suspect Peter would laugh and say, oh, you guys don't know what that is. Well, it's a this or that. And, and that would be a surprise to us. But I think most of the time we get it right. And when we're not sure, we usually admit it and don't make a wild guess. It's actually, I'm not making this up, a stock joke in my home with my wife. If something strange happens, <clears throat> I'll say future archaeologists will wonder, you know, why did they discover uh, milk underneath the dishwasher? I don't know. Uh, and, and yet, even though we've got uh, one-off circumstances that are odd if you get to look at a lot of 20th century houses from America. You're a future archaeologist. You're still going to be able to generalize. And you've got all these texts, stories and letters and bills of sale and all kinds of things, including the Bible, that are describing that world. That's a great answer. And that wasn't coming out of deep skepticism. It was coming out of curiosity. And I, that was a really helpful answer to me. This entire interview was helpful to me. This is clearly an area where you've dug deep, both literally and figuratively, and you've inspired me to want to do more. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Evans, and the use of your gifts for the church and for Bible Study Magazine. Thank you. I have in the studio with me here at the headquarters of the Bible Study Magazine podcast in beautiful, rainy all year, Bellingham, Washington, Brent Carter, who works for Ministry Relations and will now say hello. How's everybody doing today? I think we are all doing extremely well, judging by our facial expressions, but I'll give people an opportunity to express it in their vocal quality because we've also got Abigail Stocker, who is an editor at Lexham Press. How are you doing today, Abigail? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. It's good to have you. And then Miles Custis, who is the head of instructional media, formerly known as Mobile Ed here at Faith Life. Thanks for coming, Miles. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have been interested in biblical archaeology from the outside, from a distance for a long time, haven't dug into it. And I said that 
terrible pun by accident two times in the interview. And now I just did it again. I will try to stop. I felt like the key word that Evans used was correlation. I wondered if any of you have had the same experience I've had where you feel uncomfortable with fellow Christians who try to use biblical archaeology, not for correlation, but for proof, not for clarification of the Bible, but for demonstrating to everyone, you know, finally that the Bible is absolutely true. Even though I believe that, I felt like that's a misuse. Has anybody else experienced that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I definitely feel like it's a misuse as we want to really hold scripture uh, as kind of the, the the ultimate litmus test of what is true and what is not. Um, but honestly, I have to admit that personally, I, I, it, I never made the correlation, <laughs> uh, so to speak, um, between arche- biblical archaeology and scripture. So to me, it was it was actually very profound listening to everything that we that we just heard in regards to the subject. Yeah. Anybody else had that experience? Yeah, I think that, that Evans touched on it a little bit later that it, it can be a real danger when you start to pin your hopes on archaeology to sort of prove the authenticity of the Bible because, you know, you open yourself up to sensationalist claims like the Noah's Ark being discovered. And when those are later disproved now, you know, where does your faith go if that's what you are resting on? Yeah. Even as a child, I, I don't remember when this was or where this was. I was at some kind of church conference, large group of people, and we were listening to someone speak very excitedly about all the different evidences that we have for you know, that, that Noah's Ark has actually been discovered. And if only the governments would let us go there, then we could prove it to the entire world. I can't give myself enough, you know, the credit as an eight-year-old for saying that I was appropriately skeptical. But I think that even then I was thinking, well, it's just kind of odd that we have all these tiny little hints and no actual proof. And, and then some of the hints sort of seem to conflict with one another. And as I grew, I saw exactly what you said, Miles, there, that if my faith rests, and similar to what you said, Brand, if my faith rests ultimately on something external to the Bible, then I'm looking to someone other than God for the foundation of my faith, and that's not healthy. Let's talk about the most controversial thing that Evan said. Okay, let's just bring it right up. I think it's when he said that seeing Noah's flood as global fails to understand what kind of story Noah's Ark is. And he seems to be putting a little more weight um, than certainly uh, the people who raised me did on evidence external to the Bible in assessing this. He finds it embarrassing and discrediting, he said, for Christians to reject science and believe that Noah's flood was something other than a parable. And I don't want to put anybody on the spot. You can all stop being nervous uh, to make me or make you tell me what your view is. But I do want to ask uh, all of you here with me, people who love and read the Bible, have studied it uh, formally and informally over the years. Let's talk about the overall issue that Evans raises. How do we know whether a given story, such as Jonah or Noah or the all-important one, Adam and Eve, is intended to be parabolic and when it's intended to relate straightforward history, we, we affirm whatever the Bible affirms. How do we know what it's affirming in these stories? Well, I guess that's a hard question, right? Because we lack a lot of the um, cultural and historical knowledge needed. I mean, if we read a text nowadays, right, say you come across a, I don't know, a blog post that's a satire on the Internet tomorrow, you're going to be able to pick up on those cues like, oh, it's referencing these historical events, but I know that it's way overblown because I have all this extra knowledge that I bring to the text. Um, and we just, in spite of archaeology and stuff like that, we don't have that knowledge just at our fingertips, right? Um, so I think, I don't know, for me, at least it comes down to being humble about it and recognizing like, I yeah, I need to learn from archaeology. I need to learn from the text and we might get it wrong, but ultimately... Um, what is it telling us about God? What is it telling us about where the world came from? Um, kind of, I guess that's the realm of theology more than archaeology. But and, and there are times when the histor- historicity of a given event is absolutely clearly essential. If Jesus didn't actually die and actually get buried and actually rise from the dead, then our hope is in vain. We have no resurrection. There is no gospel. But there are times when that's... Uh, Good Christians seem to, who have sincere, sincere approaches to the Bible, seem to be able to disagree about what a given text is affirming. Um, 
I think you, Brent, had some thoughts about this. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you both. Um, you know, within Christianity, there are those things that you absolutely have to get right. Uh, correct. You know, in regards to knowing that, yes, Christ died. Yes, Christ is risen. And yes, uh, Logos Bible software is the best Bible software there is. Right. Oh, Isn't that also oh, abso- uh, absolutely. the essentials? Okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I really agree, I agree with you, Abby. Um, and, uh, you know, even during the interview where he said, um, uh, allowing archaeology to speak because it may clarify or correct us. And, uh, you know, making sure that we are approaching this humbly from the standpoint, uh, especially on non-essentials of, you know, I can be wrong in regards to, uh, you know, the global flood or was it regional? Ultimately, what took place of whether it was global or regional isn't it shouldn't shake my faith. Right. Because my faith is in Christ alone. Um, But being able to step back and take a look at what has taken place in regards to history, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that to where that uh, it actually made me stop and think why um, in in many realms within Christianity is there such pushback in regards to biblical archaeology and allowing ourselves to possibly be wrong about non-essentials. Admitting I can be wrong is also helpful for marriage. Let me just put that out there for everyone, <laughs> especially for husbands. Um, I, I will put myself on the line here and say, I do believe there was a global flood. Again, I'm not pressuring other people to say so. I disagree with my respected interviewee, Dr. Evans. And it's not because of archaeology, because I'm, I'm not sure um, that... Archaeology is particularly relevant here. I mean, of course, if there was a global flood, then it's going to wipe out evidence of... Um, uh, civilizations beforehand. But when I look at the text of scripture, I, I think I can, as a reader, pick up the clues for what is parabolic. Um, not only because I've been reading the Bible my entire life and just sort of develop a sense for that. Um, but also because I can look at new Testament connections to old Testament stories. I can look at the way Jesus treats the Jonah story and he uses it as an illustration that, yeah, maybe it would work even if he saw it the way we see Narnia, maybe. But the way Paul treats Adam and Eve in Romans 5, that seems particularly difficult for, for the viewpoint that says that passage was parabolic. Now, Evans did not say that about Genesis 1 through 3. I tend to agree with you. Um, you know, when you get to the, the question of something like Noah's flood, it really becomes more of an issue of, of literary criticism and how do you read text? Is this narrative? Is this meant to be understood in a different sense? And then you can yeah, definitely point to how New Testament authors or Jesus himself understood these events or at least seem to. Um, but I really think, you know, even even then, it's it's fair for some Christians to, to disagree on those issues. Um, and I, it, it troubles me sometimes when certain groups sort of spend all of their energy and all of their efforts, you know, trying to prove a global flood as if that is, it sort of gives the impression that that is the backbone of the Christian faith, that there's a global flood when that's not really the case. A better spent energy would be to spend your time sort of proving that Christ died and rose again, if that's sort of the more essential aspect of the Christian faith. I I spend actually recently a fair bit of my pastoral energies at my own church trying to encourage people to see that Christian maturity means being able to see where God places weight in the Bible and where he's chosen to give us a lot of clarity and where he hasn't. And if he hasn't chosen to give us a lot of clarity on something, if you go onto social media and trumpet and trumpet and trumpet and push that particular point, I might agree with you, but that one of the, one of the um, fruits of of the works of the flesh that's mentioned like five times in that short list in Galatians five is enmity, dissensions, um, controversies, strife. And there, it is possible to hold what is true in a way that like sort of it's, it's like tithing on mint and dill and cumin. Okay. Yeah. You ought to do that, but you're taking something that's minor and making it major. That's a huge discussion. I think we've put some wisdom out there. Evans talked about one archaeological find, a first century tomb that illuminates our understanding of scripture, particularly the burial of Jesus, which is part of the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15. I wonder what in here are some of the archaeological finds that have made it onto your radar as a Bible student. Anybody in here, does that make you think of something? 
my I have to admit, once it, 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 that question just kind of points to, uh, I don't know, maybe my willing ignorance <laughs> in regards to biblical archaeology um, to where, you know, admittedly now I want to go and say, wow, what else is actually out there? Um, that that's taking that's that is taking place. I mean, in regards to the actual um, creation of these burial spaces and how it actually um, paints uh, kind of a, a really deep picture of okay, when you know the tomb that Jesus was laid in, um, how was that prepared? Uh, you know, what, what what was the traditions, or you know, even just uh, the work that went behind doing something like this? It, it's making me actually want to act, go out there and take a look at more archaeological uh, situations and finds that and might exist. This is there. not a sales podcast, but Logos Bible Software does have an empty tomb interactive where you can do that. And I got to write, I got to write some articles for it and there's some neat videos in there. And Miles, I think you have a, an answer. Yeah. I, I can't think of a necessarily one specific archaeological discovery, um, but just in general, I think what archaeology does and, and what Evans is illustrating there is it sort of helps fill in um, some of the gaps in the biblical narrative you know, the biblical writers write to an audience contemporary with them. So they don't take the time to describe what a burial site would look like or what a tomb would look like. They just say they put them in the tomb and, you know, the readers of the gospels would know exactly what that looked like and what that entailed. But, you know, we're 2000 years away in a different culture and time. We don't understand that. So, you know, and that applies to, you know, Jesus going to someone's house and having dinner or, you know, even geographical things like, you know, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, all these things that are so far removed for us, you know, archaeology can sort of help fill in the gaps of what everyday life was like, what a table was like, what a burial site was like, even what crucifixion was like. This came home to me when somebody sent me the cotton patch version of the Bible, which is more or less a joke, but it talked about familiar places to me like Atlanta and Gainesville or something. I can't remember the precise places. And it just really suddenly hit me. Yeah. You know, there would have been people who read the New Testament, who read the Old Testament, for whom Joppa and Jericho were like Atlanta and Greenville and Charlottesville or whatever cities I'm familiar with already. And when I went to Israel, I started to grasp that better. And that's one answer I'd encourage everybody, if at all possible in God's providence, for you to be able to do is to actually go there. And I can't say there, there's one place where I got this key insight. And now I really understand the Bible. It's just an overall flavor that it's hard for me to put my finger on, but it makes a difference when I read the Bible. It really, it seems more real. I understand better. I guess there's, yeah, there hasn't been some archeological uh, discovery that's like totally changed my whole faith walk or anything, but I do think of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery. I mean, that's a huge one, right? But um, yeah, and again, this isn't a sales pitch, but watching the fragments of truth documentary that the faith life team did, um, and how they were, they have this like cool scene where it's like showing all the different manuscript fragments and like how much of the text overlaps between those manuscripts. And yeah, there's the little variations, right? Cause these are being hand copied. Um, but that was a pretty cool archeological discovery that I was like, Oh man, like this is a world where they don't have photocopiers, right? And there's, you know, they can't just like copy paste the whole manuscript instantly with a computer. And yet there's such consistency among the manuscripts and um, that we have and just how much that attests to how important they were, I think, in the ancient world. And so I think it's interesting cool. that as I've had several discussions for this podcast with fellow Faith Life people and as I've interviewed people, uh, Faith Life products have come up a lot, not because <laughs> I get a commission for uh, mentioning them on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, but because, you know, this is a company full of people who actually do care about the mission of using technology to equip the church to grow in the light of the Bible. And we use our own products because they help us. So the Empty Tomb Interactive and Logos Bible Software and all of our Dead Sea Scrolls um, resources that are in Logos including countless other things, the Lexham Bible Dictionary and all kinds of uh, biblical archaeology resources that are available within Logos. I mean, there's just so, let me just say it one more time. You could dig so deep into this topic. <laughs> yeah. And, and just to, to touch on that, Abby, yeah, I think just the finding of ancient texts is really probably one of the most important aspects of archaeology. The Dead Sea Scrolls is probably the most significant archaeological discovery of our time. Um, maybe any time it gets into other fields like textual criticism, but, you know, finding these older manuscripts, you sort of get back closer to potentially closer to what the original author wrote. Um, 
And then all the other texts, the Dead Sea Scrolls included tons of uh, writings by the community there, the Essene community. And reading these just kind of can give us insight into how they lived, what sort of things they valued, um, and just give us more of, of a snapshot of what life was like in the first century. Yeah, and that's, I, I agree with you. I, I thought it was really neat um, to where we were reminded that biblical exegesis needs to keep its eye on archaeology to help us gain that more robust understanding, um, to gain a more accurate, as much as we can. I mean, once again, you know, when we're a couple thousand years removed, it's hard for us to be able to, you know, say that, you know, we're going to go ahead and pinpoint this down to, you know, perfectly. But how important is that, especially when we value what exactly scripture is trying to say, uh, you know, within its proper context to also have this pic- this picture that biblical archaeology is painting for us. It, it, it's a wonderful thing. That brings us back to the theme for the first season of the BSM podcast, which is biblical literacy. And I think we've demonstrated through our talk that on the one hand, you could read your Bible for a while and be extremely fuzzy on archaeology and still get a ton out of your Bible reading. And yet, if you can just get really some of the basics. Nowadays, going on YouTube and watching a video of someone who walks you through uh, the one of the tells over there, or picking up one of the many resources we have in Logos Bible software, watching the Fragments of Truth documentary that we've got, it can add something almost undefinable, but an occasionally definitively helpful for interpretation to your Bible study, therefore getting you closer to that sometimes elusive goal of biblical literacy. I want to thank Brent Carter, Abigail Stalker, Miles Custis for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. We'll have you on again. Thank you. Thank thank you. Support for the Bible Study Magazine podcast comes from Logos Bible Software. Start a better, deeper Bible study experience with Logos 8 Fundamentals. Explore scripture more thoroughly than you ever imagined with Factbook, an encyclopedia of biblical places, people, and events. Workflows that walk you step-by-step through your Bible study. Notes and highlights. Powerful and integrated note-taking capabilities for insights, ideas, and questions available in your Logos digital library, and much more. Learn more about Logos 8 Fundamentals and how it will transform your Bible study at logos.com slash fundamentals. You've been listening to the Bible Study Magazine podcast, where learning is guaranteed or you get your podcast subscription fee back. Our producer is Kaylee Joyce. Our audio technicians are Brandon Van Beek and Jack Underwood. And I'm your host, Mark Ward, academic editor at Lexham Press, a division of Faith Life whose mission is to serve the church. I hope you feel served.